Hello, and welcome to Energized, a podcast series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Ipadrola, where we bring together leading voices to discuss the big issues within energy and the environment. I'm your host, Kamal Ahmed, and today's topic, the third in our series on the role of energy networks in the race to net zero, this time the grid in the United States. The Inflation Reduction Act, signed in August 2022, aims to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030. In doing so, it represents America's largest ever investment to fight climate change. And yet, clean energy projects in the US currently face lengthy delays to even be connected to the grid. And transmission capacity will need to double over the next decade if electricity emissions are to be cut by half by 2030. It clearly is a messy picture and one that reminds us, as we have learned throughout this energized series, that there can be no transition without transmission. So what are the specific problems facing the expansion of clean energy transmission in the US and how can we fix them? To help answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Pedro Azagla, the CEO of Avangrid. Pedro, welcome to Energized. I'd like to start at the beginning, if possible, Pedro. Just tell us about the state of the current grid in the US and when it was built and how it operates today. How are those US transmission lines broken up? I think in terms of the current grid in the US, there are three parts in this grid the eastern part, the western part, and Texas. Almost non-communication or connection among the three of them, and that is a pity. This network has been built mainly in the 60s and the 70s, and I'm going to give some examples about our current networks, for example, in New York. 20-25% of our poles are more than 60 years old, one-third to one-half of our circuit breakers are at least 30 years old. That gives you a feeling how obsolete the networks are right now. And why? Because the world was different 60 years ago. And the US was ahead of almost any country in terms of electrification, networks, generation, etc. But there is a moment it becomes obsolete. And that's the reason why the U.S. right now, one of the main issues, as you very well said, is the obsolete infrastructure that does not allow for the transfer of energy as needed within the U.S. Pedro, it's so fascinating hearing those figures that you just gave us. What I'm amazed by looking at this issue is yeah. how, because maybe you can't see the national power grid every day, it's not like getting on a train or seeing what a road surface looks like. It has been allowed to deteriorate in this way. What, what would you put that down to? The fact that such an important part of our infrastructure has got to this position where so much of it is either obsolete or is creaking on the verge of obsolescence. I think when you look at the US, everybody wants energy, more energy, or more energy. At home, in the factories, everywhere. When you look right now at the climate change that we are suffering, we were commenting before about July this year, looked at the weather in the Northeast, it doesn't look like a summer. 
I think when you look at the climate change, the amount of hurricanes, the amount of tro tropical storms, 5, 10, 20 times more than 50 years ago. When you have more demand, more consumption of energy, when you have more issues in the weather, and you have a 50, 60, 80-year-old infrastructure, basically it does not work. It cannot cope with the needs that consumers have ahead of them in terms of electricity consumption. And what is the impact of this separated network system that you so clearly explained on our journey and our efforts to electrify the economy, which is such an essential part of the decarbonization journey? I like to use always third parties' comments and MIT, which probably is one of the top universities from an engineering point of view in the world, they basically mention very clear, if you're going to have in the U.S. every state on its own doing the decarbonization of the grid versus the whole country doing it for everybody, I think it's probably double the cost of this decarbonization in the grid. To give some numbers, one could be $135, the other one could be $73. That's the difference, $135 versus $73. That's why transmission congestions right now are on the rising. You have more than doubled you know, those issues, more renewables becoming available, more consumption, all these data centers, you can continue and continue. That's why the combination of that the federal approach, the one-country approach versus state-by-state, state, it will be in the benefit of the customers. So let's unpick that a little bit. When we think about the specifics, what is the way forward? Is it building huge new continent-spanning continent power lines that can carry all this enormous new demand that you've been talking about or the supply to meet that demand? Or are we talking about smaller upgrades, local power lines, a much more local way of transmitting power generated by wind or solar farms? Is it super big, super big infrastructure, or is it smaller networks that can help increase the pace towards this decarbonized future? I think we, we need everything. This is like generation when people say, it only should be built this type of generation. Well, it's, it's very complicated to change 100,000 megawatts in 24 hours into something that we would love all to be different. When you think about infrastructure related to transmission, of course, company like ours, we care about the big numbers. We care about the big energy needs. Of course, there are also small networks. There are small needs at the local level, but we need to focus on a much bigger picture. You think about the following numbers right now, in terms of additional transmission just coming from transport electrification and home heating, it's probably three and seven billion a year. When you think about beyond 2030, these numbers up to 2050, probably is gonna multiply by two or three. Those are the big numbers we have right now. When you think about the long distance transmission lines, think about the new generation coming into operation ahead of us, Usually it's not next to your home. Usually it's not next to a big town, a big city. So you need to bring that power whenever it's produced. I think you have seen right now the transfer of capacity between the East and the West is increasing. 
that's probably some dollars of savings for customers. So the more we interconnect, the better. There are projects like the one we are leading right now between Canada and Massachusetts that basically focuses on what? Focus on access to cheap other alternatives of energy. In this case, hydropower coming from Canada. And finally, you mentioned the local upgrades. For me, local probably is a state level. Okay, maybe local means our homes, communities, towns. I think for us, local means at the state level. The New York City example, we have to reinforce our distribution networks because if you put all the new generation coming from renewables with existing network, doesn't work. Simply, the electricity cannot flow. In our case, just in the case of New York, it's called CLCPO, CLCPA, which is a legislation approving some investments in transmission to allow for that connection between renewable energy and the consumption of energy, just in our case, is $3 billion for the next seven or eight years. So any amount you pick up for us, for a state, for the country, is billions and billions. So it's massive amount of money. It's incredible, some of those challenges that you've been outlining there. But interesting to see that there are solutions, as you say, the Canada-Massachusetts work that you're doing does give us some sense of a possible roadmap. Pedro, take us through the unique challenges of America, the world's largest economy, where America goes, so many other nations follow or geographies follow. What are the, what are the unique challenges posed by electrification and decarbonization in the US? And the lessons that you are already learning, can they be exported elsewhere? From an energy point of view, it's very interesting when Chairman Galan and, and the rest of us arrived in the U.S. to do business 15, more than 15 years ago now. I remember taking a presentation about the importance of independence of energy. And very few people paid attention 15 years ago. We used to put the example about the national energy plan in Spain. Spain was dependent on one gas pipeline coming from one country. Think about one gas pipeline coming from another country and the mess you have in Europe right now. So you had us there, and in that case, Spain, building different LNG terminals around the country just to make sure you could offset that. We're speaking about 15 years ago. I think today, you look at Massachusetts, for example, you look at Connecticut right now, we are concerned about whether the winter is going to be tough because we may not have enough gas available to be put into the gas pipes and basically take it to customers. I think we are concerned about any gas pipeline development. It's not the case any longer for many years. It's not allowed to do any gas pipeline development. So then we move into what we try to do, which is renewables. And we try to do offshore wind, onshore wind, solar. I think you see how many times the first thing that people are going to say, main issue is called permitting. It takes a lot of time. So that's why my main area of focus, if you were to tell me the risks, what are the challenges, Right now, it's called permitting. And can we just unwrap that and unpack that a little bit, Pedro? When you're talking about permitting, take us through what some of the hurdles are through the permitting process. Very, very simple. Let me just give you two or three examples. When you think about onshore wind park or onshore solar facility, I think we're speaking probably no less than five years to be able to get all the permitting. And then you think about the construction of one, two years. So add those two numbers. If you think about an offshore project, it's probably eight years 
of permitting to get it through. And then, you know, you can add two or three years to build. When you think about the transmission line, we're speaking at least of 10 years. And this is just the permitting. Now, welcome to the world of litigation. Now you have a lot of people that potentially oppose. Many for a reason, but also many just because they want to make sure that nothing new is built because that may put in danger their existing dynamic of the market where they make a lot of money and they don't want any new energy because that may bring prices down or it's cheaper energy or green energy. They are happy to stay where they are and nothing changes. So when you see those two dynamics, that gives you already the many, many years that takes to get anything done. It's incredible, Pedro, reading some of the detail and listening to you that the permitting process takes longer than building the new network. People will be very surprised by that. They should. <laughs> As we suffer, <laughs> they should. I think you think of you about Europe right now. One of the key things there is they struggle right now with access to energy. Because many times we are used to basically pay very cheap here in the U.S. for energy, for the car, for electricity, for gas. When you think about the prices in other countries, it's two, three, four, five, ten times more. But the issue in many situations, as you're seeing right now in Europe, is not the cost, it's the access to energy. So from that point of view, when you have energy, you don't really value how much the energy is worth. We should start all thinking that energy is a scarce resource, that it's going to cost money because it's not easy to access. But also, it's a pity that having the access to that energy, permitting, and mitigation basically triggers massive delays in, it, in putting that energy available to everybody. Let's have a look at how the legislation has changed, because there have obviously been big moves at the federal level in the US to change the terms of trade in the path to decarbonization. What, Pedro, do you feel the impact has been of President Biden's the Historic Inflation Reduction Act on the work that Tavern Grid and you do specifically? I think the Inflation Act and the Investment and Jobs Act, in our opinion, is very good news first, because both parties agree and get something done. So the more we can work together, all of us, and get things done, the better. That's why, for example, when you have seen the budget and some things to make sure that debt ceiling that you had to, to go through in terms of negotiation, and the permitting is put into that negotiation, that's good news. Let's continue having the permitting as often as we can in any negotiation, because that means that's moving. When you think about the IRA, more than 500 billion coming through that, you think about the Investments and Jobs Act, another more than 500 billion, you think about the tax credit market being created, the 10 year of predictability, that's what investors, long-term committed industrial investors like us, that's what we need to make sure there is predictability ahead of us. Same thing in hydrogen. As you can see, there is a, a more dynamic right now approach to hydrogen. Why? Because something has been put into that IRA that helps that market actually become real. So anything that is supporting investment in networks, grid modernization, resiliency, I think that's in the right direction. Also, the support for local content in this global economy, I think that's positive helps a lot from a labor point of view and other dynamics. So the combination of these examples of laws, I think that what makes right now that the U.S., one of the places everybody wants to invest, 
because you have government at the federal and state level taking decisions. You have money coming and helping when there is a crisis. And you have a clear vision that at least you have 10 years of predictability from a regulatory and remuneration point of view. I think those are very good news. So that is certainly positive given some of the challenges that you've outlined. Can you give us any sense of the scale of the queue for interconnection in the United States at the moment and how rapidly or not it's rising? Right now, there is a queue of renewable projects of 1.7 terawatts. That's huge. That's a queue that is 28% or 30% more than last year. But to give a simple number, that is seven times the current installed capacity of renewables in the U.S., which is 230 gigawatts. So when you have a queue of seven times the installed capacity, I think that gives you a feeling of how massive that renewable energy is holding there to happen. Incredible when you see the size of that queue and, and as you say, that it is growing year over year. Now, what should be done, do you think, in the permitting process? Should, there be, should this be a federal power that can be held over state? How difficult that is going to ever be? What is the way to solve some of these challenges, this permitting challenge in particular? I think the first, the first action that any government, especially the federal government, but also the state government, is a streamline the process. It depends on you. So you can actually take actions through the own permitting or permits that you take care of. The second one is every time there is all these negotiations of new legislations, etc., I think it helps the parties putting this back on the table because that will allow for further negotiation and further improvement. The more we have a centralized decision-making, the better. I know you have a state dynamics, you have federal dynamics, but the more I think we can focus on centralizing at the federal level, the more rapid things are going to be approved. And at the state level, I think New York is the example how very rapidly a new legislation on these local upgrades, COCPA, has been approved. And that's why new standards or permitting, centralized, streamlined, anything you can do in those fronts, I think is going to be important because those periods of times right now are very, very long, not comparable to most of the other countries where these assets are being developed as well. And that's why for me, the more things we can do in any front, the better. This is, this is obviously a lot about partnership. As you say, there's the role of the state, federal level, politicians, regulators. What about private companies like yours, Pedro, like Avangrid? What role can you play in ensuring that some of the solutions that you've put forward there can actually become real? I think our obligation, and that's what we do for business, and that's why we get paid for, is very simple. We need to get things done. I, I don't like when people blame the politicians for the mess in energy or the mess in other things. Let's look at ourselves, what we can do. I think in our case, in Avant Grid, to have zero assets in the U.S. 15 years ago to have more than 40 billion right now, to have a three-year plan with more than 20 billion of capital expenditure of investments. I think as I always say, in this world of very complex situations and being the renewable one of them and decarbonization, carbon neutrality to help the weather 
and the climate globally, let's look at what each of us are doing. At least for us in 15 years to be the third renewable player in the U.S. with almost 9,000 megawatts of renewable energy. Of course, at the Bedrola level, probably the first one when with more than 40,000 megawatts. I think for me, we need to do more, but I think we're doing things. And you can bring in global expertise, can't you? It's the notion that some solutions that work in other parts of Iberdrola's business can work in America. The answer is absolutely yes. I think at Iberdrola, for the past 25 years, with our chairman, Galant, you know, leading this transformation, unique transformation that we have done, I can tell you the strategic plan that we put together in 2001, that we started mentioning renewables, very few people like that. We were not given any credit. I can tell you the opposition from our competitors was, I wanna, I'm not going to say 100%, but very close to 100%. Everybody was against. And that's, that's what makes a leader to, to change things. And, and it's not us, it's everybody. I mean, you see right now so many organizations, how many governments, but we need to continue focusing on real targets. One of the things we usually like is to focus on, on 23, on 25, because that's what we have to do, 2030, 2040, 2050, that's nice goals. But let's focus on the, on the short period ahead of us and let's prove as many things as we can do to make those changes. When you are in a, in, at the Bedrona level, not only financially, but also from an skills point of view, we're doing offshore right now in three, four, five countries. We're doing offshore wind and solar, pick up the number 10, 20 countries. I think anything going on in, in networks, I think we're always at the edge from a technology point of view. Seems to me that it's, it's, it's not only an honor to be part of the Iberdrola Group. I think it's a must that companies behave on this global approach because it's the only way to pick up the best from everywhere and try to apply in other places. Let's move on to consumers, such an important part of this whole conversation. How is the energy transition in the US? How does it benefit consumers? Obviously. We've seen already, as you say, the effects of catastrophic climate change. We're seeing that every day all around the world. Beyond that, what are the advantages for consumers? How does the conversation work so that consumers can really see the value beyond that climate challenge? I think the first always obligation is to prove that you create jobs, whatever you do. I think in our case, you look at networks, you look at our renewal business, probably direct and indirect jobs created in this period of time that we've been doing business in the U.S. is probably 70,000 U.S. jobs. I think that's a massive number of new jobs that in our absence will not be here today. When you think about our investments, again, 40 billion in 15 years seems to me a very sizable number. Think about the economic development consequences of, of those billions of dollars. Another example for me is purchasing. We are very keen at Avangrid, at the group level at Iberdrola, to do purchasing as much as we can locally. We believe that's an obligation. If you think about us as an example, 2022, we did almost 3.5 billion of purchases in the U.S., in our U.S. business. 94% of that was done through local companies. That's where you see direct jobs, indirect jobs, economic development, everything being put together. When people speak about the local content, very important to get some additional tax credits, etc. I think in our case, we can prove it because when you have almost 95% of the purchases already being done locally, 
I think that is a must, and that shows how we committed we are locally. And then just looking at the company as well, you have focused the bulk of your work on transmission and distribution networks. I know you've mentioned some of the renewable energy generation you are doing, but your focus has been on transmission and distribution. Just take us through that, why that has been the focus for you rather than other parts of the energy network. I, I think this goes to a vision that I think the chairman and some of us with him put on the table many years ago. And basically, we decided to focus mainly on networks and renewables. Both are needed, and they need each other. You cannot be networks, because the numbers we were mentioning before, pick up a 1,000 megawatts or 10,000 or 100,000. You, you, any number, as you know, is happening right now. Well, think about that being put into operation without any investments in network. It's impossible. But the other way around, consumers, more energy, and more and more and more. All the devices we use all the time is more energy. Well, you cannot continue having obsolete networks and not being upgraded. That's why I think the networks and renewables story, we thought it was clear since 2001 that that was the, the no-come-back future. And we have been proven to be right, and there is so much to be done ahead of us that we're just almost starting. I know there has been a lot of things that successfully has been done to change the world, but now you still have pressure because there is a war, there is supply chain issues, there are many different dynamics in the world that not necessarily are, are good, and sometimes things get a little bit slower than we all want, but we need to continue and making sure there is no stop. Now, Pedro, take us forward maybe, maybe 10 years. You've taken us back to 2001 and when you first started as a business making significant noise in this area and saying and outlining the challenges ahead, which, as you say, so many of which have come to pass and come true. Ten years into the future, looking back, what, what hope is you, what, what hope do you have for Avangrid's role and what the US grid should look like if we do move at the pace you're calling for with the right type of partnerships? I think in our case, again, the numbers I gave you, around 21 billion investment that we announced last year for, for the following three years, that gives you the big commitment. A part of that is also the position of electric distribution utility in New Mexico. But I think that gives you the feeling of how committed we are for the future in terms of investments, both in networks and renewables. I think we're very focused right now on anything related to modernization and digitalization is a must. The smart meters, let me give you an example. We are putting right now 1.9 million in New York alone. 2025, I think we, we believe we will have at least 95% of all our meters being smart meters. That's a huge change. I know probably this should have been done 10 years ago, but finally we're getting this done. I think our other areas of focus for us is asset renewal. I gave you the example of New York. There's nothing wrong. It's just very obsolete. There's a huge investment for those assets to be renewed. Automation. We need to make sure that we target for example, in our opinion, 75% of all our substations by 2025. That's a massive change versus what we had very few years ago. Advanced data analytics. I know this is going on right now in almost any field you can think of. In our case, for our operations, customer service is going to be a must. And finally, both home 
and they call electrification, we need to support it. We believe there is no comeback. There may be some slowing processing or sometimes for different reasons, but we believe that's important. In our cases, we are trying to contribute, and that's why when you ask me how we're going to be 10 years from now, I would say, look at our contribution right now in offshore, trying to help Massachusetts. Massive investment. Think about our transmission line from Canada into Massachusetts. Massive investment, but massive help. Think about the 24 states where we are doing renewable business in the U.S. I think very few people have that exposure and that footprint into the whole U.S. So we have done a lot of things, but I would love to make sure that 10 years from now, electrification, more renewables, more network has been the answer and basically the success in the years to come. And just finally, Pedro, you spoke a little earlier in our conversation about some of the hurdles and you spoke about the legacy companies and some of the opponents that you faced, for example, in different territories you work in, where you want to do work in improving the transmission around renewables, hydroelectric power, for example. What are the opponents doing and what have you come across? Is, is this the old fossil fuel companies, as, as some people might describe them, that are, that are trying to, as you say, keep the market in an old state? which frankly, it did rather well out of. What are the problems there that you're facing? First message is, is normal. You know, when you have a status quo, you're earning and making nice money, you want things not to change. So from that point of view, nothing is strange. And that's the world almost in any business as, as you can imagine. But that translates into opposition, promoting packs, hiring lawyers, going into litigation. Because I always say, every quarter you get something delayed you still continue making a lot of money. So from that point of view, I think this opposition from field co companies, we have suffered that in May. I think you see the dynamics in some other places. It's a fact. Citing, very important. I think we always feel like, yes, but, but not in my backyard, okay? It has to be somewhere else. As we always say, the need of energy is there. So if you want to consume an energy, you need to make sure you produce it and you bring it to where the consumption is. Litigation, as you, can, you have seen in our case and many others, is a, it's an abuse. It's just using the legal framework to just oppose something that in many, many cases you know is not going to be successful, but you get one or two years delay. And again, that allows a lot of people to continue making nice money. But finally, finally I think we commented on this before, permitting. To make sure that the bottlenecks and the permitting process at the federal state level is streamlined, optimized, centralized, et cetera, et cetera, I think it's also a must. And I think there are good progress at the state and federal level in that direction. And we are trying to help as much as we can to put the parties together and to put everybody in the same direction. Give me, Pedro, an optimistic vision of what 10 years could look like. I think optimistic for me is comparing to my grandparents house in a country village in Spain when I was a kid, that in one of them, there was no electricity. And in the other one, I think, I just remember all the time the electricity going off. But also there were no toilets you need to go and do that somewhere else in the countryside. I think, I think we're much better than 40 years ago. So from that point of view, let's make sure we also see the positive things right now. But I think when you see the climate, when you see the weather, when you see those issues, Globally right now, in terms of droughts, hurricanes, storms, 
I think we need to go faster because this world is, is only one. We're enjoying this world, all of us, but we need to make sure that this world is not only for us, it's for many generations to come. So if 10 years from now, five years from now, I think all these targets, we have done 100% of that or 50% of that or 200% of that, that's what I think will continue to make happy to many of them. Of course, in a profitable way, in a friendly way with, with the environment, trying to bother as least people as possible, but also as quick as possible. A lot of issues that you need to face. But having done so many things already, if we can continue to accelerate, we believe that that will be for all of us what we will make us very happy and pleased. And our senior and the next generation behind us, I think they will probably say thank you. Pedro, what a lovely note to end on. Your grandparents' story, let's hope that all of our grandchildren's story will be as positive as some of the solutions you've outlined in our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you as well, everybody, for listening to this episode of Energized. It was produced and edited by Better Soames.